Hey, it's your host Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need more listener support to be able to continue producing these episodes this year. So, if you are inspired by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of two dollars at GreenDreamer.com/support. In case you haven't heard already, I also wanted to share that I recently launched a supplementary live podcast called Uprooted, which is more off the cuff and interactive, allowing for live listener questions and contributions. This means you can call in live and be a part of the episode recording. I may sometimes debrief what we talk about here. I may invite some of our past Green Dreamer guests for more casual conversations, or even bring multiple people with contrasting or complementary views together to help further expand our learnings. For more information and to share suggestions on what you'd like to hear there, you can head to my newsletter, kamea.substack.com. For now, on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Bram Abis. The people that make most money when it comes to the gold trade are international gold refiners, which are global corporations, are shipping companies that are able to to add some flasks of mercury to their cargo and get really rich of it, but also gold traders on the local level. But then, for example, in Guyana, Suriname, our guys who own villas in the capital cities don't really go to the mines that often don't get their hands dirty. They're just living a luxurious life, knowing that people are risking their lives to, to basically make sure that they earn their money. Bram is a social scientist with degrees in cultural anthropology, development sociology, and global criminality. As an investigative journalist, he mainly reports from Latin America. And his main work focuses on conflict, human rights, migration, and the environment. We begin here as Bram shares about how he came to narrow his investigative lens on socio-environmental conflicts, particularly in Latin America. I grew up myself in a rural area of the Netherlands. Most people might know a lot about the Netherlands besides Amsterdam, windmills, and, and the red zone. But besides that, it's a very urban small country where to be frank with you not a lot is going on so since i was a little child i've always been diving into encyclopedias and atlases and i've developed a fascination for the latin american continent without really knowing anything about it so when i was a student i first got in touch with communities in central america and guatemala that are indigenous communities who were confronting a Canadian mining multinational. And when I was a student in the Netherlands, I decided to visit them. And basically I was just very much motivated by by the story of the small community who took on the fight against the global mining giant that wanted their water sources, their land, and the gold that was hidden in the subsoils. But obviously this mining multinational wanted to get the, the natural resources without thinking of how to benefit this indigenous community. And I found out that the environmental impact of their operation was actually quite big and would change the natural environment of this local community for, for ages to come. So. I decided to visit them and to find out how this tiny community thought of resistance tactics and strategies to fend off this global global power. And 
that was the moment that I got really, really struck by Latin America and the, the capacity of its people to, to mobilize and confront dynamics that are so much bigger than themselves. And that's when I started working and traveling much more often to Latin America and basically from a journalistic or an academic angle started to cover what we call social environmental conflicts. Thank you so much for sharing that. I first came across your work through the Vice documentary, The Most Dangerous Black Market You've Never Heard Of, which tells the story of mercury trafficking across several countries in South America as the largely hidden backstory enabling the booming industry and the expansion of gold mining. Though a lot of these gold mines are considered illegal, and there are several layers of illegality throughout this supply chain, but to start here... What is it about these mines that render a lot of them illegal? And what are the driving forces behind their expansion, nevertheless? In Latin America, I've been working in several countries that have presence of of gold mining. So we can speak about legal gold mining, which oftentimes is done by foreign multinationals. And these legal mines still can have a very large impact when it comes to local communities and environment. But since these global corporations have all the power in their hands to to get some sway over local authorities, they these are the, the legit projects that don't face a lot of repression from law enforcement. And then, of mm-hmm. course, you have a smaller mines that are run by oftentimes local communities, but by people that do not have the, the means to achieve possession over legal land titles, uh, environmental licenses, and therefore they're considered in, informal miners. But when we speak about illegal or criminal mining, we know that sometimes behind gold mining, we find non-set armed groups, which can be a paramilitary organization or a GRIA outfit. But we also know that organized crime has a lot of stakes in criminal or illegal gold mining in Latin America, because gold mining is perfect to launder revenues from the cocaine trade or drug trafficking, because it's very difficult to trace and track gold and To be honest, you can smelt gold from a mine in Colombia together with gold from a mine in in Alaska, and no one can know where the gold originally has been mined. So when we started looking into gold mining, we we have done investigations about corporate crimes by by global corporations, but we've also looked into the controversies behind small-scale gold mining or illegal gold mining, knowing that especially in, in the smaller mines, a toxic liquid quicksilver is used because it binds with gold that makes an amalgam, and that's what makes it very easy to trap gold with this substance, which is called mercury. But mercury as impactful to human health, the environment, and to the the well-being of animals in an ecosystem. So we know that mercury oftentimes is the substance that actually causes the harm. The harm isn't so much caused by the gold itself. But since we're always speaking about gold mining, gold trafficking, and all the dark forces behind the gold mining sector, we started questioning ourselves why we never looked into the supply chain of, of mercury. Since mercury is so toxic and damaging, how does it come that we don't know where the, the, the toxic quicksilver comes from, who get rich because of its traits, and why is it so popular in, in mining? I wonder if the expansion in gold mining, legal and illegal, does this have to do with like the global market for gold or global demand for gold increasing? Do we have any knowledge of what that looks like? So the the global demand for gold is, of course, the main driver behind exploitation of the precious mineral. 
gold is is a commodity that's very much trusted as something that's that's stable. So in times of of crisis, be the a global pandemic of an economic meltdown, we see that investors oftentimes turn to gold, and we know that gold is is a finite resource and its exploitation has has huge environmental impacts. But besides investing in gold, we know that gold is also used by the the jewelry industry and used as a as a method of speculation, but it's also used in technological applications. Each cell phone has a tiny fragments of gold in it because it's it's such a good connector. There are calculations that say that if you have a hundred cell phones, you can basically extract enough gold from them to to have a good wedding ring. What we what we basically question is that our consumption models based on commodities are often uh, so exaggerating with the the demand that we need from a certain commodity when it comes to gold we know that a lot of it is just stashed away in banks in zurich basel london or new york and actually all that gold that is stashed away in banks is pure speculation and maybe some of that gold can be released on the market and then part of the demand for technology and jewelry can be covered so there is less necessity for gold mining but we see actually that as crises add to another crisis, the demand of gold from the banking world is, is rising so much that it's, it's very well worth your endeavor if you want to, to start searching for gold in Latin America. Mm. There's so many layers to this story. And I'm still thinking about what you said in regards to a lot of the legal minds essentially being the more corporate-led and corporate-run ones, so they may have the access to be able to legitimize these practices and the ones that are illegal. A lot of times they're the smaller-scale community-based ones where people do not have access or the ability to legitimize what they're doing. And so it leads me to wonder, there are a lot of these labels for quote-unquote conscious consumerism where people talk about ethical gold or responsible mining and things like that. Do we know how that ties into this picture of illegality and legality of the mining? As in, are the ones labeled ethical and responsible or, or with certain certifications, are those largely from the corporate-run mines where they have the legal papers to showcase that it's legitimate, essentially, and are the ones that are more community-based that have been rendered illegal, are those less likely to receive these sorts of certifications of being ethical and responsible, even though they may actually be practiced at scales that are supporting people's livelihoods? So we know about the initiatives when it comes to, to ethically sourced or certified gold and most of the times these these labeling organizations try to control the whole supply chain so they look for a small-scale mine that works without mercury with respect for labor standards uh, that doesn't deforest for mining expansions etc and then they directly buy the gold from that mine or the associations of miners that are working in that mine and then they ship it to to jewelry stores or global clients but these initiatives can only work because they're very small scale. Then basically the, the consumers in, in Los Angeles, for example, have a direct contact with the jewelry store that sources from the labeling organization in a certain mine in Colombia or maybe in Ghana and Africa. And you know it's legit. But investigations into these, these ethical supply chains basically acknowledge that only a few percent of the global gold supply can come from ethically certified mines. 
because most of the gold is, is sourced from global corporate giants that have huge open pit mines that are, are always responsible for enormous environmental impacts because there is no way to do large-scale mining without having a very severe environmental impact. And these, these larger corporations don't bother with certifications because they know that they, they have their buyers internationally that won't question their, their business ethics. So I think that the market for ethically gold is also just not big enough at the moment to really start working on these initiatives. And then, of course, there are also some controversies about certain ethical mines where the miners in the weekend work in illegal gold mines or where the, the tiny mine might be a mine that doesn't work with mercury but is surrounded by 20 other illegal gold mines that do work with mercury and also contaminate basically the impact zone of let's say the ethical mine so it's it's very difficult and what also makes it difficult is that gold is basically impossible to trace gold because it doesn't have a dna like a diamond uh, a diamond you can bring it to a laboratory and investigate where it's possibly mined but gold can be mixed with gold from other origins and uh, it's just very hard to track and trace and to go back to the mercury piece so Mercury is not necessary for gold mining, right? Because you said there are mines that do not involve mercury and other ones that do. So how do the ones without mercury mine their gold? And is it just because it's more difficult to do and so a lot of mines will opt to use mercury? Mercury is a cheap aid to extract a lot of gold when it has tiny concentrations in, in sediments. So it is possible to do small-scale gold mining without mercury, but you just won't make as much money. We also know that oftentimes miners who, to be honest, can be uneducated people that uh, grew up in jungle communities without having access to other alternative livelihoods. So they know about mining because their father was a mining miner and their father knows about mining because their grandfather also did do gold mining. And there's basically some kind of superstition that mercury is the best method to get gold out of the ground. And they just swear by it and basically also deny all the, the harmful impacts mercury has for their health. For example, we've had miners that told us about how much children they're able to make and then they they love all the critiques against their irresponsible uh, health practices away we know that miners oftentimes also need to use mercury because of the project owner that just wants to extract as much gold as possible and behind the whole mercury supply chain there are huge interests so gold has a profit margin which is quite small but mercury even though there's not so much money involved has an enormous profit margin for example, the country Guyana, where we investigated a part of the documentary that we did for Vice News, uh, Guyana is one of the few countries that still legally imports mercury into Latin America, which made Guyana basically a trafficking hub because you can legally import mercury in, into Guyana and then you just traffic it illegally to the neighboring countries where mercury is outlawed. So the mercury that enters Guyana is basically worth about 17 US dollars a kilo. But that same kilo of mercury is worth over 200 US dollars when it reaches the mines. So the profit margins are over 10 times as big between the importing and the wholesale of mercury in the mines. So we have these criminal players behind the mercury trade and mercury trafficking that also force people to continue to work with mercury in the mines. So they have uh, guaranteed buyers. And then to get to the basics, where does mercury itself come from? 
So in Guyana, it's legal, but where where does the source come from? We've seen mercury imports in Guyana coming from myriad countries, including Turkey, the UK, India. But we know that a lot of mercury, which is a metal, but a liquid metal, or as they say, a quicksilver, is mined as well in very deep deposits, for example, in, in Indonesia or China. So the Chinese are also trafficking a lot of mercury into seaports in Latin American countries, such as, as uh, Suriname and Venezuela, but also in the Guyanas. But in Latin America itself, the only country that we know of that is producing mercury on quite a significant scale is, is in Mexico. And in Mexico, there are there's a very large amount of small mercury mines. And the people that are in charge of getting the mercury from Mexico illegally across the border are the cartels, because they're the, the biggest criminal structures in the country. And the Mexican cartels are able to traffic mercury through Guatemala, then overseas to Panama, and then into Colombia before it's being distributed to, for example, the legal mines in Colombia itself or to the mines in Venezuela. Wow, so it's like a global network behind this. Your project shares gold mining is the driving force of the Surinamese economy, a small country in the northeast corner of South America. Much like Guyana, Suriname's gold industry is propped up by a black market for mercury, the toxic metal used in the extraction process. The country uses over 50 tons of mercury a year, and experts believe all of it now enters the country illegally, end quote. I would love for you to speak more to the illegality of the use and trade of mercury itself, especially as it's so integral to gold mining. So has it been banned because of the toxic nature of its use on people's health and the environment? And how does that connect to the industries that are so reliant on this metal? So mercury, because of its toxicity to, to human health, I mean, it destroys your, your, your nervous system and causes all kinds of other defects as well, and even birth defects of, of newborn. But mercury also has a very significant environmental impact, uh, for example, on the, the wildlife in, in rivers. Mercury, when evaporated, also travels hundreds of kilometers through the air and contaminates uh, people and animals at a large distance. So knowing that mercury is just bad news, whatever way you look at it, there is an international convention called the Minamata Convention that many countries signed up to basically to phase out and ban mercury, especially when it, when it comes to, to legal mining, because the, the widespread appliance of mercury in illegal mining strategies means that a lot of the mercury is just discharged in the environment after it's, it's being used. So... Mercury has become illegal in, in, in a lot of countries, but there's still such a big demand for it because the, the, the mining bonanza in Latin America basically never stopped. So we wanted to, to understand why are people who are destroying their own health still using mercury? Well, this is bad for them. And when we went to Guyana and Suriname and wanted to find out how does this illegal underworld of mercury trafficking work. We we met with mercury traffickers and traders. Sometimes we pretended to be mercury buyers ourselves. We've been able to, to hang out with, with smugglers and also illegally cross a riverine border with them. And in the end, I think it was a very important learning process for us as investigators as well, because first of all, you go to one of these countries and you assume that the people who are the traffickers, who are the executors in the illegal trade of mercury, that they are rich guys having a, a quite extravagant lifestyle. But in the end, 
all these people in the Mercury supply chain in these Latin American countries are dirt poor. They're just trying to make ends meet. They're taking mercury with small boats across a river, or they uh, hiding it into small buses or, or even into Coca-Cola bottles in their backpacks when they go uh, between the, the country's capital the port and and the mines and these are just people trying to make ends meet and oftentimes in these informal circuits or illicit economies you you expect to to meet a few bad guys but in the end it's just subsistence miners or subsistence traders that want to be able to put some bread on the the table of their families and then it becomes very difficult for us to also criticize these people in a documentary or in an investigative piece because you you kind of synthesize or understand their life decisions even if they're not always the best life decisions you know but when when you start finding out more about these supply chains you just know that there is a global demand by bigger financial structures or corporate players that swallow up all these people in informality and illegality and and just making small shekels in the whole supply chain but these are the people that expose themselves to the most risk because of their their encounters with law enforcement, customs, police, but also risks for their own health because the miners are using mercury on a daily basis. Yeah. And to that point, I would ask, would it be accurate to say that those who are benefiting the most from these illegal activities, as well as those who fuel these markets, are often impacted the least by their criminalization? And the opposite is true as well. The people who are most reliant, who are also being exploited by the this industry, are the ones most affected by the criminal status of these activities. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. The, the people that make most money when it comes to the gold trade are international gold refiners, which are global corporations, are shipping companies that are able to, to add some flasks of mercury to their cargo and get really rich of it. But also gold traders on the local level. But then, for example, in Guyana, Suriname, are guys who... Uh, own villas in the capital cities, don't really go to the mines that often, don't get their hands dirty. They're just living a luxurious life, knowing that people are risking their lives to to basically make sure that they earn their money. And the people that potentially end up being locked up and arrested are the people who are actually most exposed to these toxic metals and are basically there a lot of times out of just needing to feed their families. So... This really paints a picture of injustice. And I'm sure this pattern can be seen in like the wildlife trafficking space as well and the drug trade. And I'm sure it's a pattern that we can see throughout different markets and sectors. And I guess I also wonder here if the banning of the use of mercury itself, then just it it doesn't actually address the sources of the strain in this socio-ecological crisis in terms of both what has been driving the boom in gold mining in the first place and also what has historically left many communities in these regions reliant on this industry to feed their families. So what else might you share about the broader historical, colonial, and social context that created the conditions leading to a lot of people's reliance on this health-threatening industry today? What we observe when it comes to the illegal market of mercury is that government crackdowns and trade bans and basically prohibiting its use and commercialization is, of course, an easily defendable method to to try to to tackle this issue of of the existence of mercury and, and all the harm that it's causing. But in practice, 
we've been speaking in different countries in Latin America and in, in, in Suriname and Brazil and Guyana and Venezuela and Colombia. But they say after the global crackdown on mercury is that nothing changed when it comes to supply or demand. Only the black market prices increased a lot. So small mine owners or illegal miners that already don't make a lot of money now need to pay four times the amount of money for the mercury that was acquired more cheaply before all the, the, the bans and government crackdowns. So whilst the market demand and, and offer hasn't changed, the profits increased very, very, very much, whilst the most impoverished shekels of the gold supply chain are, are earning less money now because they need to pay more for mercury. And the money that's reaching, that's that's generated by the mercury trade, increased revenues reach the deep pockets of criminal stakeholders. So so this this is very dishonest, we think, and, and, and there must be a different way to address this issue. And something that you said said before Kamea about maybe different sectors in Latin America that have the same uh, dynamics. This is absolutely true. When we look at illegal gold mining, when we look at illicit crop cultivation, for example, the coca plant in Colombia, or even the illegal timber trafficking, what we see is that the people who, who work in the countryside, who grow an illicit crop, who log a tree, who mine for gold, are oftentimes the most impoverished populations living in state-abandoned areas that have no alternatives in life. They need to partake and participate in these informal and illegal economies. Whilst global powers are benefiting from the prime materials that they are basically getting out of the earth with their bare hands. But when a government or an international law enforcement agency needs to do something about this issue, they oftentimes go for the lowest shekels in the supply chain. And these are the, the, the most vulnerable, marginalized communities, but also they're most easily to replace. What we see in Colombia is that there is a lot of illegal gold mining here and gold mining in Colombia finances conflicts because the revenues of legal gold mining go to the coffers of rebel organizations, paramilitary groups, or even corrupt politicians with, with their own head squads, you know? So if law enforcement uh, teams go after gold mining because it's being pushed on the environmental agenda, they always go for the people that are with their boots in the mud, lock them up, maybe blow up a retro excavator. But meanwhile, then the criminal investor within a week is able to, to pay for another backhoe, just contracts 20 other miners to send to the gold mining pits and continues his project. And all these people, the financiers of these environmental crimes, they're untouchable because they have some sway over local or maybe even national politicians. So what we see in all these sectors is that oftentimes in strategies to tackle environmental crimes, they go after the subsistence miners, loggers, and crop culti cultivators instead of going after the money that's financing the sector. Criminality, I know, is a common thread that weaves through a lot of your work and ties a lot of things together. And so I wonder, given everything that we just discussed and all of the investigations that you've done, how have your perspectives on criminality shifted? And how would you invite people to consider the complexity of criminality and how it relates to broader political, economic, and social contexts of power and poverty? I think it is always important to to question the power structures behind a commodity or a crime or even behind the word green because we know there is a lot of greenwashing going on when it comes to commodities are actually 
linked to illegal deforestation and, and violent conflict. So for me as an investigator, this has been this is an ongoing learning process. I mean, we've we've had quite some some impact with some of our, our, our investigations. For example, in Venezuela, we've been looking into a mining sector that was barely existent before a deep socio-economical and human rights crisis in Venezuela, which is a country that that basically lived from the revenues from the the, the oil bonanza during the last decades. But as the crisis deepened in Venezuela and international sanctions difficult the oil the Venezuelan oil trade, we saw that the government shifted towards gold mining and basically tried to reap the illicit benefits from unregularized gold mining projects. These gold mining and projects in Venezuela directly finance human rights abuses by the state, but also by non-state armed groups, such as Colombian guerrilla organizations that now operate in Venezuela. So we've been investigating gold trafficking in Venezuela because we really wanted to know if this gold is so tainted and if this gold finances all these wrongdoings in Venezuela, we want to know who's buying it. And then we basically find out found out that there are several trafficking routes over land by air uh, with boats over the, the rivers in the Amazon to bring the gold to neighboring countries where it's subsequently legalized into the illicit supply chains of the neighboring countries. For example, Venezuelan gold is trafficked by Venezuelan refugees that are under force, uh, recruited by non-state armed groups to walk gold across the border. And then it's just added to the mine production of a Colombian gold mine, and suddenly it appears as Colombian gold. But we also found out that a lot of the gold from Venezuela is trafficked to Aruba and Curaçao, which are two islands in the Caribbean that belong to the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Both islands don't have a single gram of gold in, in their subsoils, but still in free trade areas uh, with some legal trickery and chicanery, the gold suddenly is uh, leaving Aruba and Curaçao as gold coming from Aruba or Curaçao, which is impossible. So when we found out that this trafficking route exists and, it, and we saw that each month two or 3,000 kilos of Venezuelan gold went to the Dutch Caribbean, we published about it and we forced the islands with our publication to basically halt all import and transit of Venezuelan gold. We, as investigative journalists, were happy with this result because it was a very clear consequence of our reporting. But then we just saw that the gold routes moved from the Dutch Caribbean to Guyana to Suriname, increasing amounts went to Colombia or to, to Brazil. So nothing changed. So in the end, we thought, wow, this is this this has been a bit of a disaster because we can we can identify how these networks work who are financing all these these abuses but then the market just changes and the supply and demand stays the same but then we actually found out that the gold bonanza in Venezuela is so much driven by the crisis in the country. There are more than 5 million Venezuelan refugees now abroad, but most of the Venezuelans still stayed in Venezuela. And many of them, including teachers, lawyers, doctors, went to the gold mines uh, south of the Orinoco River to make ends meet. So... The gold production is also a result of the, the severe crisis of Venezuela. And we know that most of these miners aren't getting really rich of it. They're not doing it because they like to be a miner. They hate it. They're miners in muddy pits surrounded by armed gunmen. They need to work with mercury, which is damaging their, their health. But since they have no alternatives, they, they must do so to survive. And then I also think that, that law enforcement crackdowns are, are useless because the market will adapt to it. And oftentimes, illegal gold mines is driven by a lack of alternatives. So if we really want to start solving these problems, we must have 
a solution for the people involved, which can be alternative employment, uh, environmental conservation, investing development pro projects for people in the areas with a lot of illegal gold mining so that they have other life decisions that they can make. Because oftentimes gold mining is the only option for them. So instead of criminalizing these people, we should give them a hand and help find more sustainable solutions. Yeah, definitely sounds like a more holistic understanding of what's going on is really necessary. And it all speaks to a need for deeper and more systemic changes. And another more recent investigation you've been working on is looking at deforestation and conflict in Colombia. We had welcomed Dr. Christina Lyons on the show before, and she offered a brief backdrop for us on the conflicts in Colombia as they relate to the history of the U.S. war on drugs and the war on terror. And in that conversation, we had focused a lot on the local and indigenous peoples and smallholder farmers whose lifeways and ways of relating to their ancestral lands and soils have been disrupted in part by these conflicts and also the imposition of commodity crops for export and agriculture. So how does deforestation tie into this picture and what has been the intention and purpose behind this sort of land conversion? In Colombia, we acknowledge that its historical and ongoing conflict is related to, to the environment. The environment in Colombia, on the one hand, is a victim of conflict because of um, terrorist attacks against oil pipelines leading to oil spills. But also in the war on drugs, uh, more than 1.8 million hectares were sprayed with a toxic herbicide called glyphosate. But the environment in Colombia, besides being a victim of conflict, is also a, a driver of conflict because the natural resources like gold, timber, coca crops have financed non-state armed groups and have financed the violence they perpetrate. And in the end, several non-state armed groups like the former Fargaria, the current Elan Guerrilla, but also paramilitary organizations might have an ideological claim to why they exist and why they're fighting. But in the end, they've been so involved in all these illicit economies that reap the, the benefits from the environment that Basically, great rather than gravens becomes their core motivation to perpetrate the violence and the conflict. So when there was a peace deal that was signed in the year 2016 between the Colombian government and the then biggest guerrilla organization, the FARC, we saw that this peace agreement actually was one of the most greenest peace agreement that, that ever was written, because the peace agreements in Colombia acknowledge the link between nature and conflict. The peace agreements very clearly lay out that there is a need for sustainable rural economies to basically separate people from illicit economies and its non-state armed groups. The peace agreements also urge for reintegration processes for former rebels, also with, with an angle on, on green alternative sustainable economies. The peace agreements also acknowledge that we must stop the deforestation in Colombia because it opens up land for other illicit economies. So we very much applauded this. And then we even saw in 2019 that a transitional justice system, the, the GAP in Colombia, recognized environment as a silent victim of conflict. So we think that a lot of ground has been covered in Colombia, besides that the current government isn't implementing the peace agreements. So instead of breaking or disrupting the relationship between conflict and environment in Colombia, this relationship reached more profound levels after the FARC demobilized. Then we started investigating 
How is it possible that in times of supposed peace, the deforestation rates in Colombia skyrocket so fast, whilst when the FARC as a green movement still controlled large territories in Colombia, deforestation amounts were lower then? And then we found out that the FARC guerrilla in their former areas of influence actually restricted deforestation. So they told communities to not graze more than five hectares of forest a year, to not plant more than three hectares of coca crops, for example, and they banned other practices such as commercial hunting or logging. And this has to be very well understood, not so much as only an, an underlying well, how do I explain this? The, the FARC not only restricted deforestation because of ideological reasons uh, or Basically, they also needed the social control over all the people living in rural Colombia, and they gained social control by just prohibiting things. But the FARC also very much needed jungle cover to move around troops and to set up camp without being detected from above by aerial intelligence. But when the FARC moved out, the government should have showed up in all these re regions to basically work on state building, work on uh, development projects, education, justice, set up health clinics, etc. But the government never did. So when the FARC left, we saw that other non-state armed groups like the ELN or permanent organizations or, or other crime syndicates rocked up where the FARC left and they had a very different attitude to the environment and started to incentivize large-scale forest raising to advance uh, not only legal gold mining or illicit crop growing, but also cattle ranching. And cattle ranching is the primary driver of deforestation in Colombia right now. And oftentimes experts say that, okay, well, you have illicit economies that drive deforestation in Colombia, like illegal gold mining or coca crop cultivation. But we actually argue that cattle ranching is also an illegal economy because we see that cows are grazing in protected environmental areas in Colombia. We see that commanders of non-state armed groups own uh, large amounts of cattle, but also cattle ranchers pay some kind of bar tax to these non-state armed groups. And therefore, cattle is not only driving deforestation, but it's also directly financing a conflict in Colombia. So we, we have been trying to understand what is this relation between conflict and the environment in Colombia? Why must it be broken down? And how is it possible that in times of peace, deforestation is increasing? And in the end, that has a lot to do with a government in power right now that is not so interested in peace with a guerrilla organization that it rather confronted via military means. Mm. Well, as we are nearing the end of our conversation, what else do you feel called to share that I didn't get to ask you about? And amidst a lot of the grim pictures here, uh, what has inspired you most from the resilience of the people and communities most affected by these layers of violence? I have the luxury to to live in Colombia and to be traveling to, to all these fantastic areas with mountains, jungles, uh, beautiful rivers and ecosystems. And in these beautiful natural habitats, we, we find people that are able to coexist with nature without logging too much or without having an impact that's very big. So when I hide myself behind my laptop to write studies or finish investigative reports. After a few weeks, you, you get disconnected and you just want to publish and, and get it over with. But then since I live here, I, for a next project, I can go back to the jungles and reconnect with the, these people that are trying to conserve their own forests. And they give me so much inspiration because they are facing multiple uh, threats and territories from criminal, corporate and state actors. Well, they also need to cope with climate change. But still, these people have a very 
positive life attitude um, and are fighting to get ahead. And in the end, we know that indigenous movements are the best forest stewards. And they show us how with grassroots activism, they actually can safeguard uh, certain ecosystems. So what I find very important to share is that you need to keep connecting with these people that, that, that can set an example for us, how to coexist with nature. And there's nothing more inspiring than being in touch with them. Must be more to life than this Standing on the sidelines Waiting for the highlights, yeah Must be more to life than this Praying for the weekend Waiting till the magic is What has been an impactful publication you follow or book that you've read? I actually had this book in front of me, which which is a study book. So I hope this is not too boring for, for your <laughs> listeners. But this book has really, really opened my, my eyes when it comes to, to environmental crimes. Because oftentimes you think of the bad guy, of the, the, the dirty miner or the drugs trafficker or whatever. But I think in this podcast as well, in most of the things that we've said I want to underline that there are bigger global dynamics that actually dictate the rhythm of the markets related to environmental crimes. So there's this book, which is, is called State Corporate Crime, Wrongdoing at the Intersection of Business and Government, written by uh, Raymond um, Mikalowski and Ronald Kramer, who are both criminologists who are questioning global power dynamics and want to understand how companies and state governments work together. They, for example, say great powers and great crimes are inseparable. When economic and political powers pursue common interests, the potential for harm is magnified further. And when I read this book and afterwards traveled to, to Latin America, it was just so relevant to keep my keep in, into mind the tandem of state corporate powers that are responsible for many of these crimes, even though they're hiding at a very large distance of what's going on in the field. Mm. What is a personal mantra, motto, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? To stay grounded, I think it's 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 necessary to keep confronting yourself with the harsh realities. So uh, if I'm studying environmental crimes or uh, social environmental conflicts, I need to go to the areas where the impact is manifested to, to be shocked again every few months. And I need to speak with the people that are basically putting their lives on the line to be environmental stewards and protectors. Colombia is for the second year in a row, the country where most environmental defenders are killed. In 2020, 65 environmental defenders were assassinated in Colombia by non-state armed groups, by corrupt police office, officers, by mercenaries contracted by global corporations. Still, if I travel to the most remote areas of Colombia, you find environmental defenders doing their utmost best on a community level to fend off intruders and raise their voices for uh, nature uh, conservation. And I think meeting with these people is is not so much a motto, motto or, or mantra, maybe, but it's, it's the way to keep motivating myself as well, that this is uh, studying and giving a voice to these people is a necessary thing to do. And my last fire round question is, what is your greatest source of inspiration right now, if anything else, on top of what you just said? 
The biggest source of, of inspiration right now are definitely indigenous movements who are proven to be the best forest stewards. Oftentimes, these local communities are seen as, as an enemy because they're, they're not participating in, in the formal society or state. But actually, these indigenous groups are our biggest ally to conserve nature and to fight climate change and deforestation. Meanwhile, for the sake of everyone who lives in the world, these indigenous defenders and communities are facing enormous threats in their territories coming from criminals, uh, multinational corporations, uh, state actors that want to promote another interest in the territory. And they're just there, uh, be it the, Sh the Shuar in Ecuador, uh, the Naz indigenous in Colombia or uh, Yanomami tribes in Brazil. These in the end are the, the inspiring communities that are safeguarding the natural environment for all of us. Well, we are wrapping up here, but Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Bram's journalism and work, you can head to his website, bramabis.com. And Bram, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I think that green dreamers sh should continue to question the, the word green because oftentimes there, there are certification schemes that are actually laundering dirty products into a sphere of environmentality. But if you do your research, you actually can find products from local communities, be it indigenous groups or farming communities that actually support their cause and our actual green products. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. If you aren't in a position to give financially, we also appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Magic Hits by Adrian Sutherland. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcriptions are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 